To see our complete podcast list and also the video content that we have, please visit www.bestvolleyballvideos.com. Today I'm going to talk about the death of toughness. And one of the things that probably a lot of you have probably seen this quote, and it's got a variation to it. I'm going to insert the word people for men because we're talking about a societal issue here right now. And it goes, hard times create strong people. Strong people create good times. Good times create weak people. And weak people create hard times, which is kind of the cycle of life. And this podcast, I'm going to focus on what I believe is the impending death of prioritizing the quality of toughness to young people in our culture. We seem to be in a constant march toward a zero-risk, zero-failure society that will ultimately strip us of the most important qualities required to do great things and live a rich and successful life. The dictionary defines toughness as difficult to accomplish, resolve, endure, or deal with. It also defines failure as failure is the state or condition of not meeting a desirable or intended objective. It may be viewed as the opposite of success. Failure or the ability to overcome it is a critical component to developing toughness. And toughness at its core is the most critical component to overcoming failure. Great success does not come without great effort. And great effort generally is a learned, evolving process that comes from having to overcome the setbacks we face as we work to reach goals. Normally, the higher the goals, the more setbacks we encounter to accomplish those goals. For 40 years, I coached and trained the 18 Elite team at Sports Performance. The 18 Elite team was the flagship team of our club, always played in the 18 Open Division of the National Championships, whether it was USAV, AAU, or JVA. And the goal every year for those 40 years was to win the national championship. We never talked about meddling, being top five, or making it to the goal division. It was simple. We wanted to be number one, and we wanted to win the last match of the year. And with that goal in mind, we were willing to suffer and struggle and fail a lot to reach the top of that mountain. I think we played a total of 66 AAU, USAV, or JVA year-end national championship matches in the 18 Open Division, winning 34 or 35 of them. And all the credit for all those championships goes to the players on those teams. They were remarkable in their commitment to do more work, put in more time, sacrifice hundreds of hours each year, and do things that were beyond challenging that took them to the edge of failure on an almost daily basis. I've often looked back on all those years and the four decades of success and marveled at what those players and teams were able to accomplish year in and year out. It started with a simple goal and a commitment to remove all the limitations that young people today pile on themselves as reasons or excuses for their failures. Before the 2021 club season, I knew it was going to be my last season at Sports Performance, so I reached out to captains and key leaders of many of those championship teams over the past 40 years and I asked them if they would each send a short video of what their experience and feelings were from playing on that 18 elite team when they were at sports performance. I was always overwhelmed by the quality of responses as the videos started to come in, and it grew to be almost an hour long. But more overwhelming was that virtually every player from the early 80s until just a few years ago mentioned how that single goal of working to be a national champion and everything that went into chasing that goal 
was a life-changing experience that shaped them for the rest of their lives all the way into adulthood. With Olympic gold medalists, college national champions, and so many other great players telling you that so much of how they live their lives today goes back to that single experience, it makes you pause and think about what we will be doing to shape the future. Today we seem to be becoming a society of safe spaces based on an ever-expanding fragility class that is working to eliminate any type of risk in all areas of life and squash any type of dialogue that might make someone uncomfortable. Rather than a vigorous debate to constantly challenge ourselves to learn, grow, and develop in areas that cause struggle and suffering, we as a society seem to be headed to our respective corners to interact and communicate with only those around us who think and act like we do. The ability to debate one's ideas and values used to be admired because it required well-thought-out ideas that had to be articulated in a manner that could potentially allow someone who thought or believed differently than you to change their mind through your persuasion. You may be asking what this statement has to do with toughness or failure. Words have become weapons, and more and more what is read on a 3 by 5 inch screen that not long ago was merely for talking to a person in your family, friends, or business associates has the ability to trigger people to say and do the most vile and ridiculous things that just 20 or 30 years ago we would never have imagined. We are becoming a society where white noise from people that have zero value in our lives is driving us to do unconscionable things. We can call it whatever we want, bullying, cyberbullying, hate speech, whatever. But a bigger problem that almost no one is talking about is how we are letting a small number of complete idiots create such havoc. Why isn't society addressing this issue by teaching people to be strong enough to ignore those things in their lives that really have no value or worth and not allow those things to overwhelm them and at times destroy them? This evolution of societal norms has been going on for a while, but over the fast, past few years it started to really invade sports. Before I go any further, I'm going to go back to my personal experiences growing up as an athlete, which I think are probably shared in many ways with millions of other people who were born after World War II as part of the baby boom, as well as their children and their grandchildren. For decades and even centuries, every generation has wanted to give those who came after them a better life and ease the struggles that the previous generation had to go through. I believe that is a noble cause but I also understand that tough times create tough people in every sense of the word. My parents were products of the Great Depression. They led a very rough life growing up. My father told me about times after he and my mom were married, he would have to leave home to find work and be gone for weeks at a time, sometimes working for as little as a dollar a day as a field hand. I remember when I was young, we lived in a very small house in Oregon. My dad worked during the mill in a lumber mill worked during the day in a lumber mill, and then he worked in the gas station in the evenings until closing. That generation really knew what hard times was. I was one of seven children. I had six older sisters who will all say that I was the golden child and spoiled unlike they were. And looking back, even though we'd never had much money or the luxuries of wealth, I clearly lived a much more comfortable life than my parents and my sisters before me. Just as my son has lived a far more comfortable life than I had lived before, Regardless of our wealth, social status, or political leanings, through all of this, sports were consistently the place that offered difficult challenges, helped push us to do things that we never had done before, overcome our fear of failure, forced us to work with coaches that we didn't always like or agree with, and bond with teammates that in any other situation might never cross our path in a day-to-day. -day. 
in our day-to-day lives. If you think about this statement, it sounds a lot like real life. I started playing sports at a young age, played them year-round, all the way through college as a collegiate football player. I had great coaches and I had horrible coaches. I had hard coaches and I had easy coaches. I had great teammates and I had terrible teammates. I had great wins and great and humiliating losses. My life in sport has changed the way I look at almost every area of my life. As I look back on a sports career as a player and a coach that is now over 60 years old, here's what I remember. A life of sport taught me to become comfortable in a constant state of being physically and mentally uncomfortable. It taught me I didn't have to love or even like the teammates I played with or the players that I coached, but I did need to work within a structure that allowed all of us to contribute in some manner to the goals of the team. First and foremost, there was constant struggle, both physically and mentally. Learning new skills, competing to be a starter, and then competing to be a winner always took a great deal of effort and sacrifice and was full of far more lows than highs. From grade school on, it seemed like there was always a daily dose of physical discomfort that was lurking in the form of up-downs in football, pre-practice calisthenics, push-ups, sit-ups, leg raises, wind sprints before and after practice, running for punishment, hours and hours of summer wind sprints and stadium stairs, hundreds if not thousands of hours in the weight room, on and on and on. I became comfortable with physical pain when attempting to do hard things, and the harder and more painful, the better. I felt that it made me tougher, drove me harder to avoid failure because I knew others before me would quit if I didn't. Looking back, some of the things that I remember from my childhood that I think have really shaped me as an, as an, an athlete and as a coach and as an adult. And, I, and as, I, as I started thinking about doing this podcast, I thought I was going to look back on the few things. And I picked out some things that I feel like a lot of you might be able to relate to in some sense. I remember in high school, we didn't have lights on our football field. And our football coach, Mr. Peets, was a former Marine. And one day he was mad at us. And we were running at the end of practice. We used to run at the end of practice, but if he was mad, we ran a lot. And we were running 40-yard sprints. We were in full gear because in, in those days you practiced in full gear. And I remember the coaches pulling their cars and trucks up to the football field on the running track and put the lights on so we could continue running in the dark. That was, one of my, that was one of my favorite memories from high school. We also had a physical education teacher. His name was Mr. Elder. And he was an old school guy. And at that, in that time, the boys had their own PE classes and the girls had their own PE classes. There was no co-ed. And it was physical education. I mean, you played and competed the entire time in PE class. And, you know, as you can imagine, a group of boys, uh, at sometimes it would get chippy. And, you know, there was a lot of smack talking going on. And Mr. Elder was a pretty strong disciplinarian. And if he said circle up, when you got out of hand, the entire class formed a circle. And the two guys going at each other, he would pull out these 16-ounce boxing boxing gloves that looked like small pillows. And, you know, you would have to go at it with the guy you were fighting with, arguing with. And it didn't happen very often, but he called your bluff. You couldn't be anonymous. You couldn't be like people are today. Think about all the white noise that goes on today, all the anonymous back and forth. When he said circle up, that meant that you were going to have to go at it with the guy you were arguing with. And, you know, I think I saw a total of three or four times in, in two or three years of PE, but you always knew he would call your bluff. You always knew if you were going to act tough, he was going to let you prove how tough you were. And so it got rid of almost all the pettiness 
all the sniping, all the back and forth. And if you've ever done anything with 16-ounce boxing gloves, you have about 90 seconds in you, and then you're done. And, you know, most of the guys that were arguing with each other, you know, walked out. They were friends. They walked out. Whatever they were arguing over, they walked out. It was over. But he called your bluff. He put an end to the back and forth. It was humiliating for you if you had to skid out there in front of that group. And needless to say, there weren't many fights. And those PE classes with Mr. Elder were valuable. Now, that would never happen today, but we need some form of that to happen because it literally put an end to all the stuff right now that we see in our society, which is constant back and forth. It put an end to it right away. I also remember that as I, as I went through my, my athletic career, you know, I, I started to thrive in this environment of goal setting. I started to thrive in this environment of you know, trying to do things that were really physically hard. I just felt like if I could do those and survive those things, it was going to make me stronger moving forward. And um, I remember I, I, I attended the University of Redlands in Southern California, and every year the first day of practice, we had to run a mile for time. Now, looking back now at the physiology of football, there's zero correlation between running a mile for time and anything else in the sport of football. But Mr. Elder, or uh, Mr. Uh, coach Soreo was our head coach at the University of Redlands. Uh, you know, he coached a long time, and he believed in running the mile. And so I remember the summer before my senior year, you know, in football you lift weights, you get big, you get strong, you want to get fast. But I remember the summer before my senior year running long distance a lot, almost every day, because my goal was to win the mile uh, on the first day of practice. The, the backs ran a mile and the linemen ran a mile. And my goal was I wanted to get under five minutes and I wanted to win the mile. And there was, you know, 20, 30, 40 guys <coughs> who were running backs, quarterbacks, wide receivers, defensive backs. We all had to run in one group. And then the, the linemen always all ran in the other group. But I'll never forget spending that summer training in, in a in something that was going to last five minutes that I would never do again, but to win that, to win that race. I mean, it, it was the, the background that I had started to go through in sports and the commitments I had started to make and the lessons I had started to learn and the, the ability to, to, to struggle and, and withstand pain that I had, was learning as an athlete, you know, it just kicked in. And it was a matter of pride that I wanted to win the mile. I did win the mile. I, won, I, won, I think I won the mile with all the backs. We had a lineman, actually, whose name was Skip Buck, who actually ran the mile faster than me, uh, who was, a, was an amazing athlete. Uh, but I, I, as I remember, I, won the, I, I was finished first among all the backs. So uh, that was another memory I have. And then the one that I think really kind of stands out in my mind is the, in 1979, I had moved from California to Illinois to work for a gentleman whose name was Bob Guida at the Sports Fitness Institute. And Bob was a, he was a, he was a, he was a mad scientist. He recently has passed away in the last year, but he was, I loved him so much. He was just a phenomenal guy, but he was a former Mr. America. He was, uh, he was, you know, he was a guy who, he had people working with rubber bands and balance beams and balance boards in the seventies, long before anybody else. I mean, there's so much of the stuff now that you see in, in motor learning and sport development uh, that, that he was doing f back in the 1970s. So, but he came to me, and I had just gotten out of college. So I had played college football that fall. I'd run track that spring. I'd moved to Illinois. You know, I, I was pretty big into weightlifting at the time, so I was pretty heavy. I was probably 185, 100, 185 pounds. Uh, and, you know, I really like to, to lift and I like to work out. And, 
you know, I had asked Bob one day if he would, you know, if he would train me. And I just kept bugging him. I want, I want, cause I wanted to work out with a guy who had been a Mr. America. And he took me out through a isokinetic circuit and it, 15 minutes I was in the bathroom throwing up. Uh, he just drilled me. But as we got to know each other over the summer, he had this experiment that he wanted me to be a guinea pig in. And his, his theory was that, you know, the energy systems that allow you to be a sprinter or the energy systems that allow you to run middle distance or the energy systems that allow you to run long distance, there's some crossover in all those areas. And so in the summer of 1979, he came to me and he said, I want you to run the Chicago Marathon. It was going to be in October, October 21st, I think, of 1979. He goes, I want you to run the Chicago Marathon, but I want you to not train for it by running. I want you to go through a series of all these. And right now, I guess looking back on it, it would be a lot like body weight and really lightweight CrossFit where you would do 20, 30 high-intensity reps of something, uh, and, and then you would do another rep of something else and another rep of something else, push and pull and legs. And the idea was to keep your heart rate at a high level, uh, but you weren't running. Okay, you were, you were using a different energy system, but you were trying to train an energy system that would allow you to run a marathon. So, you know, I was 20, early 20s, and I thought, okay, sure. So the way the schedule was set up, <clears throat> I ran a, I was going to run on Sundays to the point where I could, I could get calluses on my feet. So, you know, I could, I could, because a 26 mile marathon is, is a long time. And, you know, so I would run one time a week and I think I ran eight miles each Sunday. And I think one Sunday I went out and ran like 18 miles. And I, you know, I was in shape from college and I'd always, I'd been an athlete my whole life. So, you know, I could survive an eight mile or 18 miles was going to be more difficult, but I ran a total, I think of 80 miles, uh, 80 some miles before the marathon. Now, if you know anything about marathon training and the, the miles that people put in, and when I say I ran a total of 80 miles over in the entire training block for that marathon, that's all I ran. That's it. And I only ran one day a week. So when the marathon time came in 1979, it was over 80 degrees that day. It was hot. And the humidity was over 80%. It was, it was just brutal. And I remember, you know, we started it in the morning at some point in time and it, it was just a brutal day. I remember passing people. They were on their hands and knees throwing up. I think, you know, about 1,200 people dropped out of the marathon that year because it was, it was just so hot and humid. And, you know, there, it was just, it was a brutal time. But the one thing that I remember is that I was not going to quit. I was not going to stop this, this quest I was on. It just the the stuff that I had decided to go through, the pain and the suffering and the struggling that I decided I would go through to finish this marathon, I wasn't going to quit. And I owe that a lot to all the things I did that led up to that day in sports where I was challenged to be the best I could be. I was put through into situations that were really physically uncomfortable that for me, that, that caused me physical pain. We ran a lot. We did a lot of things that, that, that it wasn't fun but it allowed me, it got me to that point on that October day in 1979 where I was able to finish a marathon, which I really had no business of running to start with now that I, that I know. I had no business. And so 
But I did it, I feel like I did it because I was strong mentally. I certainly wasn't in shape to run a marathon. You know, I ran it in about four and a half hours, which, you know, it isn't that impressive. But if you, if you look at how many people dropped out and, you know, the fact that I was able to finish it on that day, which was just brutally hot and humid, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that it was run on pure guts. And I don't think I would have had any chance to ever do something like that or accomplish something like that if I hadn't have gone through all the other things in my life prior to that that had made me day in and day out make decisions to not quit. And I think that's one of the things that we talk about. And, and the reason I say that is because when I turned 40 years later, I had a goal my 40th year. I wanted to run a marathon and I wanted to bench press one and a half times my body weight, which I knew would take a lot of training. So I started training for the marathon, ran on a regular basis, ran a marathon, I think, in 3.30 or under 3.30, took a, over an hour off my time from, you know, a dec over a decade before, and also uh, was able to, you know, bench press one and a half times my body weight, which was, I don't know, 250, 260, 270 at the time, because I probably weighed 175 after all the running and stuff. But it, it was, and again, that that goal setting, a, a marathon and, you know, a bench press goal, you know, also came back to, you know, what I was willing to commit to do and the work I was willing to put in day in and day out to try to reach those goals. And so, you know, I, I learned that setting high goals and pursuing those goals had serious consequences attached to them in the form of like time commitment, accountability, a lot of other things, lots and lots of struggle and lots of failure with no guarantees that I would ever reach the goal that I had sacrificed so much to try to attain. So it's one of the things I think for me that was very important. But I did know one thing for sure. And, and I learned that through sports and I learned it through just working harder than, than I thought everybody else around me was willing to work. And that was if I didn't make those commitments and I didn't make those sacrifices and I didn't embrace that struggle and I didn't embrace that suffering, someone else would do it. And if someone else would do it, my failure was guaranteed. And failure was not something I was willing to accept at that point in time. Brings me back to the topic of this podcast. It seems that we are quickly evolving to a society where our self-worth and our life is controlled and dominated by likes on a screen versus our ability to compete for and reach higher and higher goals in all areas of our lives. There was a time when you were known for your actual accomplishments, not for your number of social media followers. The processes in the past created toughness and caused us to fail, but also gave us the tools and the ambition to overcome those failures. Now, those are slowly being replaced by the impossible metric that we are all winners equally and that we must remove those things in our lives that trigger us to feel like losers, even if they are true. You see it everywhere you turn. As a society, we are running away from competition in so many areas and the word equal opportunity, which is the most important thing we can give every human being, has been replaced by the word equity, which means that the end result will be determined and manipulated, not by a meritocracy where those who compete and work the hardest are the victors, but for other reasons. In the world of junior volleyball, one of the things that I see a lot of is the need to make concessions, not only to run our business, but we've started to, I think, feel like that we've started to cave in to demands that will ultimately lead to issues down the road. And I think it's one of the things I see is a lot of people have these big teams with 12 or 14 players on them. 
And I, and I know that that pads the bottom line in some way, but I, I don't think club directors are doing it just to make more money. I think they're doing it because now in the world of junior volleyball and in sports, you have to guarantee somebody that they're going to be on a number one team. You have to guarantee a player where they're going to play before they've ever earned the right to play on that team. And I think we know down deep that this isn't something that's even remotely right, but it's something we do. And the argument behind it is that we've, we've kind of caved into this demand that we, that we put people where they want to be, not where they need to be or where they belong. And I think that's one of the things that, that we see right now in, 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 in all sports. It's not just volleyball. So I'm, I'm not, and, and I'm in no way picking on people because I realize, you know, sometimes in these, in these situations you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. But we know down deep as coaches that if 12 or 14 people are on one team, we know two or three things. We know that the work-to-rest ratio in a training environment is going to be much different than the work-to-rest ratio of a 9 to 11 on a team where kids get way more reps over the course of a season because there's just less people on the team to share those reps. We also know that in competition, especially if we have competitive teams and we're trying to win, we also know that we're not going to be able to play that 11th, 12th, 13th, or 14th player nearly as much. So the issues that will come with that are going to be probably within the club are going to be playing time, kids quitting because they're not playing. And I think the key thing that we look is that Players feel entitled to play on a number one team, regardless if they've earned the right or not. And I think one of the things that you see every year now is look at the transfer portal. Look at what happens at the end of a year when players don't play as much as they wanted to. They don't get their way in the way they want to get their way. I mean, the transfer portal is primarily filled with people who are looking for more playing time. I mean, there are, I, I realize there are other players in there, and the name players are looking to play for national championships. But primarily, people leave their schools if they're not happy or they're not getting enough playing time. And I think that's one of the things that we see. And I think everywhere we look in sports, we see the collapse of norms that have been in place for decades. I mean, the Vince Lombardi trophy is the trophy that you get when you win the Super Bowl. It's named after Vince Lombardi, who is considered one of the icons of all time in coaching in, in any sport. But does anybody really think Vince Lombardi could keep a job today if he was here coaching football right now? How long would he last as a football coach if he wasn't willing to completely change the way he coached? If a team is being lazy, not listening, or paying attention in today's society, which is not hard to imagine, how many coaches who 20 years ago would have said, line up, we're going to run, now take a pass on that. Or how many new coaches just say, it, it doesn't enter into the equation. You don't want kids to quit. You don't want parents to come in mad at you. You know, there's all these things. And I'm not advocating that consequences or punishment makes people better volleyball players because I wasn't really big on lots of running, you know. I mean, if we ran, it was, it was for science. It wasn't for punishment. But, I mean, the biggest issue we have right now is that we have to admit that the landscape is changing so much that we're afraid of the consequences that will come down on us if we hold players accountable and give them consequences to try to make them tougher, stronger, provide failure to them to be better. It involves some suffering. It involves some other things like that. But it's across the board we see that all the time. 
And one of the things I mentioned earlier was that we've weaponized speech. Words now are considered weapons. And merely saying something that someone finds offensive or says they find offensive now oftentimes becomes a career-ending offense for a coach or a teacher or an administrator or a position, person in a position of authority. The question I often ask myself is how much does someone need to be offended before a person loses their job, the income to support their family, to pay their mortgage, to pay their insurance? It used to be a lot. Society used to be very careful about destroying a person's livelihood and ask, taking away their ability to work and feed their family. Today, that is not the case, and more and more the mantra is ready, fire, aim. Dominates our work and professional lives. The player or players who could easily enter the transfer portal and go to another school oftentimes now find it necessary for them to either go on social media or their parents need to come in you know, and go after a coach, you know, go nuclear on social media, seek to fully destroy that individual. I'm in no way saying that there's not things that are certainly firing offenses, but if you're in the world of sports, it's pretty obvious the pendulum has swung way past the middle. By today's standards and expectations, if we were to go back and start to judge every coach and player in every Hall of Fame in virtually every sport over the past five to six decades, how many of the all-time grades could hold a job in today's world of sports? that number would be small, much smaller at least than it was before. If the word verbal abuse had existed when I was growing up, <clears throat> virtually every coach I ever had could have been accused of it at some point. Yet here I am, 50 to 60 years later, there wasn't a single coach I ever had who didn't leave me with some type of lesson that I could grow from. Good lessons or bad lessons, it didn't matter. It shaped my growth as a person. How I took a coach's criticism was my choice. We are, we are all a product shaped by our journey. That journey becomes valuable when it creates an individual who is strong, independent, and can survive everything that life throws their way. I have friends who are teachers, some older, some younger. I was talking not too long ago to a retired teacher who still substitutes part-time. I asked her if the kids had changed since she first started, got into, into teaching. After, the, after she gave me this bewildered look that said in unspoken terms, are you really asking me that question, she said, Kids don't fear their teachers anymore. They will take out their phones right in class and call their parents and tell them that, they're being mean, that you're being mean to them. By fear, I know she was referring to the fact that kids used to never want to get in trouble at school because it would cause more trouble when they got home. Those days are gone forever. I also know younger teachers who say that the landscape of education now is to not do anything that will make the student feel uncomfortable in any way and make them feel inferior to any other students. I wanted to do this podcast because I don't think this issue is generational, but rather I think it is societal. The damage will be far-reaching, and it will have the greatest effect on those who will lead us in the future. We all know the benefits of creating independent and strong-willed people who understand that hard work, sacrifice, and a commitment to doing hard and great things and overcoming failure are the lifeblood of a successful society. What we don't know yet is the long-term damage that will be done if we lose that. I'm a person who believes that if we're losing our way, and I think a lot of other people feel the same way, but are afraid to say it. I'm not sure what they're afraid of, being canceled maybe, being unpopular, who knows. But in today's culture, words like failure and uncomfortable are trigger words that we seem to try to avoid at all costs. I feel like if we focused a little more on toughness, then failure and being uncomfortable would be things we embrace to make us better in all areas of our lives. 
In closing, I want to say <clears throat> I'm a huge rodeo fan because if there are athletes who embrace toughness, it's cowboys. There's a saying in the rodeo world that I think we need to look at hard for society. They have a saying that goes, and I love it, all try and no quit. Wishing everybody the best.